Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, July the 14th, 2023. Long time viewers, listeners to the Keenon show know that in the old days, we always used to ask authors um, what their favorite books were. And what one book that came up time and time again was uh, a novel called Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Uh, a book about uh, Shakespeare's son or an imaginary Shakespeare's son, a novel, huge success when you go to Amazon, has 54,000 ratings. It's astonishing. Most books don't even get 54 ratings, let alone 54,000. It's won all sorts of awards. And um, I'm really honored and thrilled that Maggie O'Farrell, who has followed up her prize-winning Hamnet with another Huge success, The Marriage Portrait. It came out last year uh, in hardback, and it's out right now in paperback. It's got 18,000 reviews on Amazon, which isn't bad. Uh, And I'm absolutely thrilled and honored that uh, Maggie O'Farrell is joining us from Edinburgh, Scotland, where she lives. Uh, Maggie, uh, congratulations on on the paperback. I'm sure you always get this question on the relationship between Hamnet and the marriage portrait, but they're both books about, or they're both novels about imaginary children. Is that fair? Um, Well, they are novels, but certainly Lucrezia in The Marriage Portrait and Hamnet in Hamnet were definitely not imaginary. They were both real uh, and they lived about 500 years ago. They are separated by about 30 years in time. Uh, but actually, there's you know, I think when I started writing The Marriage Portrait, I was hoping that <laughs> I remember hoping that some of the research I'd done for Hamlet might mean that I had less homework to do for writing The Marriage Portrait. But actually, you know, the life of an 11 year old boy in rural um, in rural England in the mid to in the late 16th century is miles apart I and mean, years apart. It's a totally different world to Lucrezia, who was a, a a Renaissance principessa in 16th century Florence. So actually I had to unlearn everything I'd learned about rural England in the 16th century and learn everything about Florence in, 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 the, in the Renaissance. Do you have any kids of your own? I do. I have three kids. Yeah. My eldest is 20 and my youngest is 11. Wow. So you're on the, on the front lines of, of what it's like to be a parent. There's this, I guess it's a truism about modernity that we invented the idea of childhood. In the marriage portrait, this young girl is presented both as a child and as an adult. Was there such a thing, Maggie, as childhood in the 16th century, the, the area that you've, you've written so successfully about? I think absolutely. I, I don't really subscribe to the belief that we've invented childhood. I think childhood exists you know in its own right it exists because there are children in the world and certainly yes Lucrezia was born into a life of enormous wealth and privilege you know she she was a Medici you know which is one of the most famous and the most powerful dynasties of that time but and at the same time you know she she lived in um she lived 
in a palazzo, a Renaissance palazzo in, in Florence. But she essentially spent her whole life in lockdown. It was too dangerous for her and her siblings to leave the palazzo because her father, Cosimo de' Medici, was so worried about assassination attempts on or kidnapping of his children because these were these were very very precious and heirs to, to, you know to, to the Medici dynasty. So I think her childhood was uh, was certainly one of limitations. You know, enormous privilege but huge limitations. She and her siblings essentially lived in sort of two rooms of this vast palazzo. If they wanted to exercise or fresh air, they had to walk out on the battlements. But at the same time, having said that, that I, I do think childhood existed. Yes, she. Um, she was betrothed at the age of 13, which, you know, we we would count into modern day world. Oh, well, as... Yeah. And she wasn't exactly thrilled with that. That's the, the central narrative. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, actually, she, yes. So so if you were if you were a son born into the time and place, if you were you know born into a family like the Medici's in 16th century uh, Italy, you, you the expectation was that you become a ruler and a soldier like your father. And if you were a daughter, the expectation was you would make a politically advantageous marriage. You know, you would be having an arranged marriage that was. Uh, for some reason sort of politically or fiscally uh, advantageous for your region and your parents and that's exactly what happened to Lucrezia so she was betrothed at 13 she began her marriage at 15 to a man almost twice her age and then by 16 she was dead Uh, well one of the things I didn't and and, uh, excuse the dim-wittedness of this question one of the things that I didn't quite understand about the book was why was that a big deal? I always assume that older men, I mean, the, the husband was only in his late 20s. What was the big deal about a man in his late 20s marrying a teenager, especially in a in, a, in an arranged marriage? Was that unusual, Maggie? I don't think it was that unusual. I mean, actually, Lucrezia's parents were only about, I think Cosimo was maybe two, three years older than uh, Lucrezia's mother. Uh, but it wasn't unusual for a young girl of 15 unfortunately to be married to a man of 27 so I think that was you know uh, Alfonso why do you say unfortunately well because she's 15 which I think is pretty unpalatable to be uh, paired (laughs) off with a man who's 27 you know I to me that's very unfortunate and very unpalatable and actually even for a 17 I mean even if the husband was 17 15 is is pretty young isn't it I mean, today's world is it's illegal, you know, for good reason. The book then and, and the character is this odd mix in my mind of in, incredibly incredible sophistication, a kind of uh, a 16th century mind um, with innocence. What, what kind of woman? I mean, you've obviously it's a fictional recreation, but what kind of woman do you think Lucrezia Medici was or could we even call her a woman I mean a girl I guess yeah I, I would call her a girl I mean she died she died at 16 to me to me that's still a girl not not quite a woman is it on the cusp of um I mean actually to be honest the real Lucrezia de Medici has not left many marks or we don't want you to be too honest uh, Maggie <laughs> you're a novelist <laughs> She hasn't left too many traces of herself in in the historical records. You know, despite being born into a very famous dynasty and marrying into another one, she herself um, has pretty much gone under the uh, sort of under the radar. Um, Her parents, Cosimo and Eleonora, despite having had an arranged marriage, were, were very devoted to each other and they wrote to each other a lot. And the letters are 
a, you know, a real cache of domestic detail of the of the Medici's. But actually, Lucrezia barely gets a mention. It's very clear from the letters that Cosimo, the dad, really favours Isabella, one of the other sisters, and the mother, Eleonora, favours the sons. Lucrezia gets, I think, one or two mentions. There's there's one mention of her being unwell with a stomach uh, problem, and there's another one of her not concentrating in her lessons that, she, that, that mentions that, she, that she's a bit of a daydreamer. Um, and actually, that's pretty much it. I mean, obviously, her life was very short. You know, she died at the age of 16. Yeah. Um, but really, you know, she is somebody whose life has been written in water. Uh, and she is uh, best known uh, because of Robert Browning's poem my last duchess was that your introduction to her is that what inspired you to at least at the beginning to, to think about writing a novel about her yeah absolutely I mean that's how I came to her really you know because I love that poem I, I studied it at school and uh and I was reread I often reread Robert Browning's dramatic monologues when especially when I'm between novels because they are just so perfect and so brilliant and I was rereading it one day just actually, it was in February 2020 because you know we all remember what we were doing then, um, and I was just wondering to myself idly one day whether or not it was based on real people. It's an incredibly powerful poem. It features an Italian duke describing to a visitor um, his his previous wife, and he shows him a portrait, and he says, "You know, isn't she beautiful? She kind of annoyed me sometimes." And also, I, I murdered her, by the way. He's also talking to the representative of. The woman, uh, the family of the woman he's now hoping to marry, which which is quite an extraordinary admission to somebody, <laughs> to, you know, confessing or not, you know, but actually being pr quite proud of the fact that he murdered this 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 young girl. So I I started looking. I was just wondering if it was based on real people. So I started looking and I found pretty quickly her name, Lucrezia de Medici, and that she'd been sixteen when she died, and also this portrait, which the only one of her in existence, which was painted by Angelo Bronzino who painted uh, most of the rest of the family. He was obviously a very favoured court portrait artist. And he, uh, so, so he painted her. And, and as soon as I looked at this portrait, I just knew it was a kind of like a weird lightning strike. I knew that I would write a novel about her. I would want to write her story that she might have told were she able. You're a mother, three children. So, you know, we're not supposed to favouritise our kids, Maggie. Um the book, in in a way, is about a father who favoritized one daughter over another, and the emotions of the daughter who survived. Um, what about as a writer? I mean, when you have this ridiculous success of a book like Hamnet, you've written many other books, many other very well reviewed, successful books. Do you sometimes think of books like children? Are you supposed to be fair to all of them as a writer? I'm not sure I think of them as children. And actually, I, I genuinely don't have a favourite of my books. It, it would be a kind of a strange, it would be a strange thing to think about. Like You're that, a yeah. good parent. You're a good parent. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I, I, I couldn't possibly fa uh, um, favour any of my children above the others. I, you know, I love them all to a ridiculous degree. <laughs> I think they're the most, the three most perfect human beings ever known. That's what you tell them, at least. Right? <laughs> no, it's true. It's absolutely true. I, I confess that. And, my, and books, in a sense, you know, I think they're all... Here are they, all your books. I mean, you've got a ridiculous <laughs> yeah, amount of books. I think they all, they all represent certain phases in my life and certain uh, interests. And, you know, they had their own joys and challenges, just like children, I suppose, in a way. So no, I, I genuinely, hand on heart, don't have one that I love more than the others. Um, a lot of the reviews of, uh, of the marriage portrait, um, Maggie, have focused on the fact that, for better or worse, 
you've your your what the Guardian uh, or what one reviewer suggested uh, suiting modern sensibilities. Some of the reviewers like that. Some are a, a little bit more ambivalent. Did you make an effort to suit modern sensibilities? Uh, should novelists recreating imaginary or semi-imaginary historical figures should they should they be in the business of creating these people to suit modern sensibilities? Well, I think in a sense, you know. Writing any historical novel, um, it is going to be a view on the past, which is written in the present. That's that's what historical novels are. You know, if you look at something like Middlemarch, Middlemarch is a, is a historical novel, um, and it, you know, it it, it, it the, the, the very kind of form itself is about the modern world looking back at this past world, wherever that might be, you know, 50 years ago, 500 years ago. So so in a way, it, that's inevitable, you know, and obviously this is a novel. I, I, I chose not to write a biography or a historical novel about Lucrezia or, or about her family. Um, it, you know, the, you know, I, I think obviously, you know, the, the, the kind of lack of historical record about Lucrezia might be a frustration to a biographer, but to a novelist, it's an opportunity. So, so you are going to fill in those gaps with whatever narrative you yourself want to tell. But I think, you know, a modern viewpoint on the past is essentially what what a historical novel is. So, you don't think that a, a novelist should should fight those modern sensibilities? Well, it's not so much that. I think if you are going to choose to write about the past and particularly write about people who were real, you know, even though they've been dead for centuries, you do have a responsibility to get it as right as you possibly can. But I suppose I do believe at my very core that although the world changes all the time, you know, Lucrezia's world is is is, is vanished. It's gone. She would find our world totally baffling and alien. But so I think the world changes all the time. But I I do really strongly believe that I don't think human hearts and minds do change that much. I think people, humans are essentially the same. We are, we can, you know, there is a kind of uh, commonality between us and them. I don't believe that the past is an alien, you know, different country that's unrecognizable to us. I think actually, you know, you might walk through the Uffizi Gallery in Florence and see these marriage portraits of these young girls. And I mean girls, not women, because they were girls. And they might look meek and accepting and submissive to their the idea that they are making these you know essentially political merger marriages but I don't think they were I think they can't possibly have been you know I mean and you just have to think about what a teenager is like you know meek and submissive and accepting are not adjectives which I I would attach to teenagers I can't even get my teenage daughter to wear a coat when it rains you know the idea I mean, well, to... Maggie I have a, a daughter in the in 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 her early 20s and nothing's going to change it only gets worse I guarantee you thanks Andrew that's <laughs> that's very encouraging you know so I need to look forward to <laughs> thanks so so I do I, I don't necessarily think that some of those sensibilities are necessarily modern I think that maybe they're human what is it, Maggie, about 16th century Italy that fascinates all of us? You talk, I, I'm sure you slipped in some, some research in Florence for this book. We all love going to Florence and, and, and that part of Italy. On the one hand, of course, the world of the Medicis is horrifying. It's Machiavellian in the worst sense. On the other hand, it produced all this art, these palaces, this remarkable culture. And we return to it time and time again. Uh, beyond the 
the beautiful art and, and, and buildings and palaces of, of, of Florence today. What is it about this world that is so important and attractive to us moderns? I think part of it is, as you say, the beauty. I think the beauty of it is so astonishing. And, you know, I think it's and also I, but I think something about it is that it's still very present in our world today, partly because of its enormous wealth you know men like Cosimo and uh from Tuscany and Alfonso from Ferrara I mean they were astronomically wealthy you know Lucrezia's dowry uh, the money that Cosimo gave to Alfonso when they married was uh 200 gold scudi and you know and I didn't know what that was so I asked someone and apparently it's the equivalent of 50 million dollars in today's money and that's the kind of amounts that were exchanging hands but as you say you know none of that beauty and art and sculpture and painting was possible without the, without the money that that people, men like Alfonso and Cosimo had at their disposal I mean they were very ruthless rulers they were both very successful and very very ruthless and you know in order to be successful and bring financial stability to your region um, you had to be quite ruthless and brutal. There, there was an account that I read of Cosimo in a meeting with a foreign emissary. And, you know, by all accounts, he was a very loving man and father. He adored his wife. He adored his children. Um, but when somebody annoyed him in this meeting, he there's a description of him pulling a dagger from his boot, stabbing this guy mid-sentence, and then carrying on with, with the meeting. Mm. You know, that's what happened to you if you annoyed Cosimo. He was he was not going to put up with anyone who disagreed with him, put it that way. So I think, you know, I think what what I came to see the, the Renaissance as is this kind of dichotomy of beauty and brutality. Yes, we have this astonishing architecture and sculpture and paintings that we all know today, even if we've never been lucky enough to go to Florence and see those paintings. We could all we all know what Botticelli's Venus looks like, um, but it's also paired by this brutality and you can't have one without the other. There is, and I use this carefully, maybe you'll correct me, there is a kind of implicit feminism in the book, it seems to me. This is a, a woman who's looking for her own, a, a young woman or a, a, an older child who's looking for her own agency and questioning the fact that she is not able to choose who she marries and, and how she leads her life. Machiavelli, of course, famously wrote, about fortune being a woman and riding her hard. Um, do you think of the book as a, as a kind of, in, in a sense, uh, um, a feminist story or a proto-feminist story? Possibly. I mean, I didn't. It's not something I set out to do, certainly. And, you know, I think my the kind of engine behind the book for me was to want to tell her story. You know, the poem by Rob Browning is so famous. And, I mean, rightly so, because it is beautiful and brilliant and chilling but at the same time I had this urge of, of wanting to take the curtain from the Duke's hand and say that's enough you know and pull back that curtain and let her speak you know because I think but I think actually what really interests me is is particularly in writing historical novels and this goes for Hamnet and also the marriage portrait is it's not necessarily the people who are the history makers the people who are uh, rule or the people who leave very famous or notorious lives that interest me it's the people who are in the background, the ones that flip through the shadows are the ones that I would, that fascinate me, the ones that uh, inspire me to write a book about them. Uh, you know, it, it, it's those people. And I suppose, you know, um, Agnes in, in uh, Hamnet and also Lucrezia in The Marriage Portrait would, would be those people. So I suppose it's not a huge coincidence that they are women. But then again, you know, actually it was 
Hamnet, this lost and forgotten son who inspired me to write Ham, you know, Hamnet. I, I've always felt that not enough people knew that Shakespeare had had this son with pretty much the same name as possibly his most brilliant play. So in that way, but, you know, so I think, you know, it's not a huge coincidence that these people often tend to be women. Uh, and is it a a shriek from Maggie O'Farrell about how unjust the world was back then or more of a, a book celebrating the agency of a girl who had no choices and, and, and yet wasn't willing really to accept that? Well, what interested me while I was doing my research, actually, and this was I, did, I wrote this book pretty much in lockdown. I got in touch with somebody, an art historian from Edinburgh University called Jill Burke, and she um she has this very brilliant lecture, which you can actually see online, which is about how she feels that um, the Renaissance was could be seen as a time of the first wave of women, uh, women and being professional, uh, professional writers and professional painters. There were a number of women working, supporting themselves and their family as painters and also writers at that time, which I found completely fascinating because it, it isn't something I knew about. No, we've done, uh, we've done a, a couple of shows actually on on books about uh, female artists from from that period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that that really interested me, and but I suppose it was just I think what what spurred me on was just this kind of untold idea, you know, that she had been silenced and unnamed for so long. You know, the only trace she left behind really is the portrait by Bronzino and also her, her unnamed and silent appearance in the poem. Um, so I just wanted her, I wanted to tell her story because I think it had been hidden for so long. As you mentioned, uh, Bronzino produced this this portrait we don't know whether it was the real girl or otherwise you've brought her back to life the narrative of the book also includes the narrative of power and painting and representation did you i mean you've obviously given this a great deal of thought but uh, in terms of writers and painters and representation what what do you feel your responsibility is uh do you enjoy all that power, Maggie? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would think of it as power, certainly. I mean, you know, I well, think it that... is. you decided who she should be in your book, uh, for better or worse. I mean, you didn't you didn't put it out on Twitter and say, what should this woman look like? <laughs> well, I think I, I, I think, you know, I used whatever I could find about her. You know, I have a, a rule with myself that if you are going to choose to write about people who were real even if they've been dead for a long time it is your responsibility in a way to find out as much as you can so I spent ages poring over this painting which um is by uh, Bronzino and also the the other one the copy of it which is in uh, the North Carolina Museum of Art the Allure which is the one I think that's been flashing up on the screen so I spent ages poring over it with a with a and with a magnifying glass to see if I could find every single detail and looking at all the jewelry that she's wearing and realizing there was a realize that I realized that there's the belt that she's wearing, the cintura, the, the golden belt around her waist is mentioned in a letter from Alfonso's father. He's, and he's a bit grumpy about getting it out of the safe to give to her. He, he doesn't mm. want to, he doesn't want to hand it over to, uh, to the Medici's, uh, but he does obviously cause she's, cause she's wearing it. So I think you do have a responsibility and, you know, I have a very strict rule that even if I found, out of fact about her or her family that didn't quite fit with the narrative that I wanted to tell, but I still had to work hard to work it in. I couldn't just pretend I'd never read that. But I'm not sure if I see it as a kind of 
power. I think I see it as a responsibility. You know, even though I'm writing fiction and this this will be shelved in the fiction, uh, you know, shelves in, in a bookshop, you know. So so obviously my Lucrezia isn't the real Lucrezia. You know, I know that and I hope readers know that as well. But, but I think I what I would do is always feel a responsibility to get it as close as I possibly can. Was the the painter in the 16th century, in some ways, Maggie, the equivalent of the novelist of the 21st century? I mean, novels are, are modern things. I don't know when the first one, what was 17th or 18th century, didn't become a popular form, whereas painting was much more popular. How do you compare and contrast the business of writing about someone versus painting them? I think I think it I th I think it's close actually that's an interesting idea and I think I wanted the novel to to imitate as much as I could in, in fact the form of a of a of sort of creation of a portrait there's a whole theme in the novel about the underpainting or the imprimatura which is the the layer of paint that an artist in, um lays on a canvas or 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 a piece or a board or a piece of tin whatever it is they're painting on and then they layer up the paint to create the painting and I I really loved that as a kind of metaphor for um, looking at history, you know, because I, I just, you know, you walk through a gallery like the Louvre or the Uffizi and you see these beautiful, perfect paintings. And I love the idea that behind them are these other layers, these other interpretations. You know, art historians have x-rayed um, the Mona Lisa, which is probably the most famous painting ever, let alone a Renaissance painting. And they've discovered that behind uh, her very famous smile uh, are different iterations of a smile of an expression that that da Vinci tried out before before uh, settling on the final one, and that to me is a very interesting metaphor for the way you can look at history. How we, we think we know one narrative, but actually behind it will be many other interpretations. But I, I think you know I think in Renaissance time portraits had many many purposes. You know, they, in some ways, some of them were as a as a sense of showing off, you know, Cosimo and Eleonora had themselves painted several times, many times actually, by usually by Bronzino. And Eleonora's portraits, I have read that, you know, that she, I mean, she was incredibly beautiful, Lucrezia's mother, very stunning look, looking. And she had, um, and, and she's wearing the most extraordinary, enormous, elaborate silk dresses. And I have read that some of these paintings were a kind of advertisement for the silk trade in Tuscany. So, so in one way, it's a kind of advertisement, but also, you know, the, kind of the, the betrothal portraits were a little bit like your online dating profile. You know, when you take a selfie of yourself in the most mm. natural way, in your best clothes with all your hair and makeup done. Um, and that and, and that's what they were. You got an artist to paint you in your best clothes with all your jewellery and your hair looking gorgeous. And then you sent it to your prospective suitor to see whether or not he or she would uh, would fancy you. You know, when I think of the image of Lucrezia, um, and then I think of the work of so-called realist painters like Vermeer, um, Woman in Blue, for example, what happened to, to painting as it sort of drifted northwards from the Renaissance to the Reformation? Well, I think, you know, I think all, all eras in art have their own have their own motion and their own movement and interpretation. And I think we all stand on each other's shoulders, don't we? You know, without the, I don't know, the Donatellos or the uh, Botticelli's of this world, there may not have been the Bronzinos, you know, without the Bronzinos, there may not have been the Vermeers. I think there is a kind of dialogue between eras in painting. And, you know, that's true of all art forms, I think. Finally, uh, Maggie, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be somewhat uh, depressed that you spent your COVID 
years writing this book. Most people didn't quite know what to do with themselves. Um, a lot of people are going to be watching and thinking to themselves, how can I be Maggie O'Farrell, at least um, replicate some of her writing success? What advice would you give historical, wannabe historical novelists who uh, want to, if not imitate uh, your work, um, at least uh, have some success, get more than 54 reviews on, on Amazon? I think I think the I mean I don't know I'm not sure I feel qualified really to give advice. Well, you but, are for better or worse because you got fifty four thousand for Hamnet and eight and even eighteen thousand for uh, for for Marriage Portrait. So readers love you, Maggie, and reviewers love you. So you have a uh, it, it's a fair question. I think what I would say I think the the best piece of advice I could probably give is that you if you want to write you have to be very fierce about ring fencing your time to write you know i think you have especially to be tigerate, tigerish right you have to be tigerish exactly there's, and a, you big, there's to... a tiger in the marriage portrait so. that's right there is a very important tiger in the marriage portrait uh, cosimo kept exotic animals in the basement of his palazzo because why not um, but i would i think you know make say to yourself i'm going to write after you you know send the kids to school or you know whatever it is uh, you 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 decide you're going to start at 9 a.m. and you're going to sit there till 10 a.m. and your nothing is going to distract you. So you turn off your email, you turn off your phone and you focus exactly on that. And you might you might not write anything. You might write a paragraph, you might write a sentence, but make sure you stick to that and be really fierce about it. Don't let anything encroach on your writing time and something will something will come. Be a tiger. How long did the marriage portrait take you from beginning to end, from, from the idea? About, to... about two years, I would say. Yeah. And have you been surprised, intrigued by the public response? Yeah, I'm very touched, actually. I think uh, I, it makes me slightly uh, emotional for Lucrezia. I've always felt that she was overlooked and underloved. And the idea that people are looking at her picture and reading about her, I, I, do, find, I do find quite moving. I, I'm so glad she's out from behind the curtain now. She's out behind the curtain there, uh... Chloe uh, Zhao is doing a, a movie of, of Hamnet. I'm sure that's going to be a huge um, uh, sensation um, in Hollywood. Uh, I, there, there is a, a strong, it seemed to me from reading the book, there is a, a strongly cinematic quality to your writing and to the imagery. Uh, have, have the movie rights been picked up yet? Yes, they have. Yeah. Uh, nothing, nothing is sort of uh, firmed up yet, but... But someone has the uh, uh, the movie rights have been sold, so who knows? Keep who's gonna it. Who's gonna play Lucrezia? Well, I don't know. I don't know. That will be an exciting an exciting uh, casting. I think somebody somebody unknown will be probably best. <laughs>